0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano.
1: The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to
0: continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just
1: perform. Listen to The Only Way Is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from howstuffworks.com.
1: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Deblena Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And chances are, if you've ever worked outside of the home, you've probably been introduced to the idea of workplace safety at one time or another, whether it's been through one of those workplace safety videos that we all know and love or a basic fire drill. We
0: had one just last week.
1: Yes, we did. And we did very well, I think. I hope so. Yeah, me too. We're on the 15th floor here, so we need to know. Good to to be up on our fire safety. But it's not a perfect system. I think most people probably think that. And we saw that also in a food safety podcast that we did a couple of weeks ago. But there's at least some emphasis on safety regulation at most reputable corporations. Yeah, but that wasn't always the case. Not at all. About a 100 years ago, it wasn't really unusual at all for workers to die on the job. There's actually a stat you see a lot from that period that says that about 100 US workers on average used to die every single day. In mines, on ships, trains, in factories? Yeah, so when you start to think about facts like
0: that or statistics like that, it's not too difficult to see how a terrible event like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire could occur. It was a fire that spread through three floors of New York's Ash Building in Washington Square, and it really stands out not just because it's a tragic event. A lot of people died. It's one of the worst U.S. workplace disasters, but also because it instigated a lot of reforms that were very much needed at the time in workplace safety Standards And led to some real positive changes in labor unions and women's rights, too.
1: Yeah. And especially since it's the 100th anniversary of the fire this year and a frequent listener request. Yeah. People have really been requesting this topic as long as I've worked on the podcast. We want to take a look at what happened on that fateful day, March 25th, 1911, the trial that ensued and the whole events after effects. What happened? How did it influence workplace safety?
0: Yeah, definitely. But first, we want to take a look at the conditions that made the fire possible. And around this time, in the early 1900s, there were hundreds of blouse factories in New York City, and they employed mostly immigrants, thousands of immigrants. And the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory was one of the largest of these garment operations. It employed more than 500 people. Most of them were Jewish and Italian immigrants, and most were young women. And it took up the top three floors of a 10-story building, the Ash building, which was located on the corner of Green Street and Washington Place on the northern corner of Washington Square East. So if you've visited that area today, it's now NYU's Brown Building.
1: Yeah, and they made, as we mentioned, shirtwaists, which were women's blouses that were loosely based on a man's fitted shirt. And they were popularized by commercial artist Charles Dana Gibson. So he created this image of the The Gibson Gibson girl. Girl. Right. And it was kind of an iconic 20th century woman, and she wore shirtwaists. Yeah, So, so
0: stylish but practical at the same time.
1: Right. And this became all the rage. So it was big business at the time for the Triangle Factory owners, Max Blanc and Isaac. who were getting rich off the concept.
0: Yeah, but the conditions of the factory did not reflect the wealth in any way. There were long hours, there was low pay, there were pretty much no breaks for the workers, lunch breaks were often shorted, so you wouldn't even get paid for that. The female workers were followed to the bathroom and then sort of rushed back to work. And then the factory itself was just a terrible place to work. It was airless. It was crowded with people and supplies. Obviously, it was a fire trap. There were open bins piled with shirt scraps all around. And that's a really important thing to remember during this podcast. The whole workspace is filled with cotton scraps.
1: Yeah, it was a full-on sweatshop. And to make matters worse, Blanc and Harris did a few things that weren't exactly up to fire code, even at the time. They really feared their employees stealing from them. So they limited access to the exits and made the workers take a specific exit at closing. And that was the exit that was on the Green Street side of the building. So there they set up partitions so that they could funnel one worker through at a time and have her search for stolen tools, fabric, shirtwaists.
0: So yeah, obviously this would create a problem if there were a lot of people trying to get out that one exit at one time, but there was another stairway. There was a passenger elevator, two or several passenger elevators on the other side of the building, but they were reserved for management and for the public. There was also a third stairway that was legally required by the city, but unfortunately, corrupt officials had let the owners count this flimsy fire escape on the back side of the building as the third set of stairs. It wasn't really a realistic escape route.
1: Right. So women finally unionized and they participated in a strike led by the Women's Trade Union League in late 1909. They were fed up with these conditions. They knew they weren't working in a safe environment. And so they wanted to fight back a little bit. The owners, though, were stubborn. They had the backing of Tammany Hall. And so they were able to get strike breakers from street gangs and they got thugs to break up the strike. Eventually, though, in 1910, Blanc and Harris finally relented and they agreed to some minor concessions, higher wages, shorter hours. But still, after that, not really much changed. Factory conditions were still deplorable.
0: Yeah, so they were still in a bad spot. And Saturday, March 25th, 1911... A cutter on the eighth floor named Isidore Abramowitz noticed flames coming up from his scrap bin. And this was around 4.40 at night, so it was right before closing. I think you mentioned earlier he had put on his coat when he he saw these flames. He was ready to go. He
1: was ready to get out of there. But then he noticed this fire. And just as a side note, nobody really knows exactly how the fire started. He says he just noticed it spontaneously. It may have been a match or a smoldering cigarette or cigar thrown into the bin. Maybe by him, maybe by someone else. We don't know. But the fire marshal thought later that that was probably how it started, as from a cigarette butt.
0: Yeah, but cotton, of course, is very flammable, as we've already mentioned. So the fire, which seemed pretty small at first, was blazing within just a few seconds. And so Bromowitz grabbed a red fire pail and dumped it on the flames, trying to quench this thing quickly. And others did the same, but it didn't do any good. The fire was just too strong already. And so the flames started to just spread all over the factory floor. And the factory manager, Samuel Bernstein, told the workers to get out the fire hoses. So they were still working on trying to contain this thing before abandoning ship. But that didn't help either. And that's because the hoses, which hadn't been inspected, turned out to just be completely useless. They didn't have any water pressure. So it was just wasted precious seconds in what turned out to be a really fast paced disaster.
1: Right. At that point, there was really nothing for them to do but try and find a way out. And people went about that in different ways. But basically, a lot of it came down to luck of the draw. How close was your station to an exit? Which direction did you choose to run in? It was all these split second decisions. And there weren't
0: second chances either.
1: Right. Whatever you decided in that moment would determine your fate. So we're just going to go through a few different scenarios, decisions that people made, places they went to try to escape. So in a panic, many of the workers ran to the doors on the Washington Street side, but the doors were inward opening because the stairway landings were supposedly too narrow to accommodate outward opening doors. So with the mob pressing up against these swinging doors, they wouldn't open, and everyone was just sort of crushing the people in the front because they were trying so frantically to get out.
0: Yeah, so other workers tried to get out on the Green Street side, and they were slowed down by that security check funneling partition that we mentioned earlier. And besides The stairway and the elevators were jammed, so
1: not much luck there either. So some other people also tried to escape by the passenger elevators. According to an article by Charles Phillips in American History, elevator operators Joseph Sito and Gaspo Mortillo risked their lives by making trips to get some of the workers, but it's still unclear exactly which floors they visited and when they visited them. So what people have determined is that it's likely that they visited the 8th and the 10th floors. Zito later guessed that they went up to the 10th floor twice, actually, but the second time they went up, the floor was empty.
0: Yeah, and the 10th floor is pretty key here, too, because it's where management was working. So Blanc and a couple of his daughters and Harris were on the 10th floor at the time of the fire, and they and all of the 70 workers who were on that floor managed to escape, and some of them got out by the elevator, and some took stairs to the roof, and from there they were helped by NYU law students who extended ladders from adjacent buildings— which sounds absolutely terrifying, climbing over ladders, 10 floors up.
1: Yeah, between buildings. And some people also tried to take the fire escape, which is probably even more terrifying than that because it was so rickety. And it only went from the 10th floor to the second floor and stopped above a courtyard at that point. It was so flimsy. Apparently, the architect had promised to fix it previously, but never did. So when people tried to take it, it detached and fell. Yeah, I Yeah, too few, much weight. Exactly. I think too, a few people fell down at first, and then finally the whole thing gave way and just kind of crumpled.
0: But of all of the floors, the ninth floor definitely did the worst. The doors to the Washington Place stairwell were found to be locked, or at least, we're going to talk about that a little more. Our survivors claimed that several of the doors were locked, and that turned out to be pretty crucial in the after-effects of this fire. But... Aside from the doors potentially being locked, the elevator was packed with those 10th floor folks. So it would come down to the 9th floor and open, but nobody else could get on. And then the Green Street exit was jammed. So there was just hardly any way out of the building if you were stuck on the 9th floor.
1: Right. Some escaped by making it to the Green Street stairs and getting to the roof A few others slid down elevator cables, some more successfully than others. If you see stories of some people who slid down the elevator cables and they made it, and some people-
0: When you mentioned a woman who who woke up in the hospital?
1: Yeah, I read an article from that time of a woman recounting how she slid down the cables and she kind of lost consciousness around the sixth floor and woke up in the hospital, but she survived. Yeah, that's amazing.
0: But unfortunately, about 80 of the people who were stuck on that floor did the unthinkable, and they jumped out of the window onto the street. And logically, we can assume that the people who jumped didn't think that they were going to make it. They were just desperate to escape the burning building. But a lot of people by this time were down on the streets below watching it all happen.
1: Yeah, and I mean... With our recent history in September 11th, I think we don't have to try too hard to imagine how horrifying this was to watch. And some of the people who were watching from the street actually tried to prevent the workers who were mostly young girls, as we mentioned. Some of them were as young as 14 years old. They tried to prevent them from jumping, telling them, hey, wait. The fire department's coming, don't jump. But even when the fire department got there, their ladders would only reach the sixth floor.
0: Well, and their nets didn't work either. They put up a safety net about 100 feet below the windows, but the weight of the jumpers would just tear right through the net. And we also have to consider not all of these girls were actively choosing to jump. Some of them were just being pushed out by the masses of people struggling inside the building.
1: Um, Just to give you an idea of what this was like to watch from the street, William Shepard, a United Press reporter, happened to be in the area, and he kind of described the horror of of watching this. He said, The first ten shocked me. I looked up and saw that there were scores of girls at the windows. The flames from the floor below were beating in their faces. Somehow I knew that they, too, must come down, and something within me, something I didn't know was there, steeled me.
0: Yeah, so I think this is sort of the hardest part of this podcast to take. And all of this happened in only about 15 minutes, which again, that's just so you have one second to make a decision about what you're going to do. That's a really scary part of this whole thing and then it's all over uh, by about 457 146 of the 500 triangle factory employees were dead and almost immediately after people started looking for somebody to blame if you have a tragedy of this magnitude somebody's got to go down for it it seems
1: yeah one person who was really on the warpath about this was district attorney Charles Whitman and he was determined to find somebody to blame he convinced a grand jury to eventually charge Blanc and Harris with manslaughter caused by willful negligence. And the trial of these two owners started about nine months or so after the fire, and it lasted for three weeks. Blanc and Harris were represented by a guy named Max Stoyer, who was a renowned lawyer at the time. I think he was, like, the premier trial lawyer in New York. And there were 155 witnesses involved in the case. So if you can imagine, like, all these survivors coming forth and recounting the stories of their escape and just the harrowing tale of what they had gone through so recently.
0: Yeah, but the whole... Case the whole trial hinged around whether or not the owners knew that that Washington Place door was locked. And they, of course, were saying, no, it's not locked during working hours. But even a fire prevention expert testified to the contrary. So
1: there were different opinions going on here. But the judge had instructed the jury that they must be convinced not only that the door was locked and that the owners knew it was, but that more people would have survived if it was unlocked which is a really hard thing to do. So the jury acquitted the owners after less than two hours of deliberation, and they went free.
0: So the two owners didn't take the blame for the fire, but there were still some major reforms that came out of the whole thing.
1: Yeah, there was a factory investigating commission established, and they looked into the Triangle factory and they realized that there were no sprinklers, no firewalls, no fire doors, even though those things were available at the time. Yeah, the owners had just chosen not to feature them in their own factory. Yeah, but in their defense, I guess, um, or to at least give you the whole picture, most factories didn't have them. So over the next few years, there were many new laws concerning the labor environment and labor protection for women and children. That came into play.
0: Yeah, and reforms like these also became a major part of the platform for a lot of progressive politicians, including Frances Perkins, who later famously went on to become the first female cabinet member um, under FDR. And she actually had seen the fire firsthand.
1: Yeah, she was there in the neighborhood with a friend having tea or something, I think, and she saw it. And she later pointed to that day as the birth of the New Deal. So it's interesting, I think, to see kind of how her story played out after having seen the fire. Kind of a Phoenix situation, I guess. Yeah, and throughout the years, people have continued to follow the stories of people who were there, people who witnessed the fire and people who were a part of it, who were part of that terrible experience. Rose Friedman, the last living survivor, died in 2001 at the age of 107. And there were a lot of stories about her at the time. And,
0: I mean, her account is is really interesting to read, too. And it kind of gives you a sense of what we were discussing earlier, that you had that one split-second decision to make. She had, she knew the management was going to get out or
1: that they had the best chances and had decided to go up instead of down. Yeah, she went up to the 10th floor, and it turned out to be a great choice. She went up to the roof, and she survived. Unfortunately, not everyone did, as we know, and a lot of the people who died were identified by their family members later. They set up this temporary morgue, and family members would come by and identify their kin, and that's how they came up with this long list of the deceased. But there were six people who weren't identified um, in those years immediately following. And just this year, researcher Michael Hirsch finally identified those six unclaimed people who were burned so badly that they couldn't be recognized after the fire. So at the centennial commemoration outside of the building this year on March 25th, the names of all 146 people were read for the first time.
0: Yeah. So it's I guess it's good that they're finally all recognized and can be memorialized.
1: Yeah, and you can still find out a lot about them and and kind of read about their stories. There are lots of articles out there, I think, that you can look into. And uh, we didn't get to go too much into them today. Personal stories. I know. I was kind of complaining about that to Sarah earlier. I was like, I wish we had tons and tons of time to just talk about some of these personal stories and um, you know not just the victims but the survivors and how they got out and um lived to tell the tale and but, how
0: this influenced the rest of their lives too
1: yeah and so i guess if you guys have any stories out there that you know of the triangle fire or some of the survivors that you want to share with us um maybe a personal connection or a little-known story that's not really out there, please send it to us. You can write us at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com, or you can hit us up on Facebook or on Twitter at History. Yeah,
0: and if you want to learn a little bit more about labor unions, we have an article on that. You can find it by going to our homepage and searching for labor unions at www.HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.
0: This is Danny Shapiro host of the hit podcast, Family Secrets. I hope you'll join us for some incredible conversations about family, identity, and what happens to both when the secrets that have been kept from us and the secrets we keep finally come to light. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.